You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Welcome to First Christian. I invite you to take your seats and get comfortable before I make you uncomfortable. No, we welcome you to First Christian. We're, we're just a group of people here that are trying to follow Jesus. That's our mission. And so if you're here for the first time, we are glad to have you. We welcome you into this journey of following Jesus. And it's great to be able to gather in the presence of God and worship God. Most people don't like to be told what to do. Do you fit into that category? Do you like to be told how to drive? Do you like how to put, be told how to put the cups in your cabinet? How to organize your files? How to, you know, do you like to be told what to do? Now, sometimes people have a problem with God because they think of God as that one up in the sky who likes to tell us what to do. And nobody likes it. Whether you're a kid trying to glue two pieces of paper together, you don't care. Even if your, your teacher knows how to glue them together, you don't need any help. If you're an adult, even if you know the person is your boss, you don't like them to really tell you what to do. You might finally do what they ask, but no one likes that because we want to be the leader. We know what's best. We know how to act. Another thing. Not only do most people not like to be told what to do, but most people don't like to think that they're being controlled. Like that something or someone is organizing and guiding their every move. And this is another thing that people will say about God, that God's just up in the sky, kind of like someone playing a video game. He's got a controller and he's just directing you and you've got no say in the matter. People are shooting at you, they're causing you trouble and they don't we don't like to think that we're under control that maybe we're a rat in a maze that maybe we're a part of some grand mysterious experiment a part of being just another robot in a machine because we're leading the charge we're the leaders now those are some things that people tend to say about God I don't like to be told what to do and I don't like thinking that God is controlling things Set those aside for a minute. I've got a third one that I'll share with you at the very end. But I want to introduce you to my friend, Harold Crick. Now, if you're watching us online, you're going to see some silence for a while. But I want to tell you about my friend, Harold Crick. Probably one of my favorite movies of all time. My favorite Will Ferrell movie, for sure. It's called Stranger Than Fiction. And in this movie, Harold begins to realize that in some way, His life is being controlled. So I want to invite you to the movies. I want to invite you to watch this trailer. Again, if you're online, you'll see a link where you can watch the trailer. We can't show it to you because of copyright. But for those that are here, let's meet Harold Crick. Great movie about a man who figures out that his life is somehow being controlled. Now, we don't like that. I hope you'll take a look at that movie. It's worth a close look. The thought of someone else controlling our life sets our skin on edge. And sometimes that's what we think God is doing. Well, I'm inviting you into a different story. The story of God. Over these next several weeks, we've we've just begun this journey of looking at the entirety of the story of the Bible. 
in only 10 weeks. And we're here now in week three. And yet, there's a sense that we wonder about, is there something going on that we're a part of? And I'm inviting you into something different. To imagine that your life is something that you're co-authoring. Something that you're collaborating with another on. And I'm inviting you, as strange as it may be, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, to think about your life as some, in some way being co-authored by you and by God together. One of the questions that we face a lot is whether or not we're in charge of our life. In fact, we look around and we wonder, well, who is in charge? And usually when we say that, we're wanting to blame whoever is in charge because things are not going as we might want them to go. We tend to know who the authorities are in our life. We've got maybe a boss or we respect a parent figure in our life. But in this story of God, God has invited us into a relationship. A relationship where as you're going through your groups and you're looking at the titles of these weeks, God is the title of every week. He is the actor in this story. And today what I want us to do is to ask that question that's often asked in our life of who is in charge and to look at this section of the story of God and see who's in charge. So I'm going to talk to you some about law, some about leaders. Now, when it comes to the story of God, a lot of times we think about it being a bunch of rules. That the law and guidelines and dictating and policy are, are what this story is all about. Thinking about in the beginning there was law. Well, the story of God is built upon a promise. God is a promise maker first and foremost. God enters into relationship first and foremost. He creates people to be in relationship with one another and with him. And it's all founded on a covenant promise. Covenant's the same word for promise. The promise that was given to Adam, a promise that was most clear in Abraham, and all these promises where God says, I'm going to bless you and take care of you. The story of God doesn't begin in law. It's a story that's built upon a promise. Now today, we're going to look at law, but this law comes much later than what we looked at last week with Abraham. It's a law that means pointing. That's what Torah means, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, pointing, Torah, instruction. And it points backward to the covenant, the promise that God has given to Abraham to bless Abraham, to make of him a great nation, to give him land. It's a promise that's not exclusive just to Abraham. It's a promise that's made to us. It's inclusive. Where God intends to bless the whole world through Abraham. And he does it through Abraham's people that come to be known as the Hebrews, the Habiru. Now we tend to think about the Hebrews as being a certain ethnicity, a certain religious persuasion, but Habiru, as it's used in, the, in that ancient time, means nomad. It means wanderer. These were all different kinds of people, different backgrounds, different connections to God. Some of them no connection to God, but they're bound together by being wanderers, nomads. The promise and the law are different. And there's a big danger in trying to collapse the two together, 
Can I make one last pass at trying to help you see the difference between promise and law? If I promise to take you out to lunch, and that we're going to do it, we're going to go out, I'm going to buy your lunch, that's, that's a promise. If I tell you I want you to eat a sandwich on Tuesday at noon on a plate, that's a little bit different, right? That's me giving guidelines and prescriptions. The story of God is built on his covenant promises of entering into relationship with Abraham that he didn't have to do, of creating a world and a universe that he didn't have to create. And out of that promise and out of that covenant comes his desire to point us in the right direction, which is what law means. And in this story of God, it's given to Moses. One of our first characters that we'll talk at today. I'm going to throw you all kinds of character names today. You might know Moses. He's the one who received the Ten Commandments. And we think about the Ten Commandments as something you're supposed to post up or a bunch of rules that are foundational to society, and they are that. But if you look closely at the Ten Commandments, they're a story. In Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, both of those places where they're listed, they start by saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who acted first in relationship to deliver you from your bondage. The first four of those commands are all about our relationship to God. And the next six are all about our relationship to other people. Even these rules that are so foundational for society are built upon relationship guiding us closer to this God who is the God I am. Okay, well I bring all of that up because sometimes we in religious circles are prone to overemphasize the law and to underemphasize relationship, which is what is the foundation of what God is doing in this story that he has given to us and a story that he's involved us in. All right, next. Let's take a look at some leaders. Prepare to hear quite a few names. Names of leaders that I want to introduce you to because, I mean, once you begin to follow Moses around, there was a lot of questioning of Moses' leadership. And this wasn't a new thing. Before Moses, we'd had the patriarchy, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these family leaders who ruled. And then Moses comes on the scene and leads the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Moses is probably the greatest leader in Scripture. He is a guy who was a deliverer, he was a prophet, he was a great military leader, and a great judicial leader. And a lot of these characters that I'm going to give you, they kind of have some one-liners that they're known for. Since Moses was involved in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's kind of hard to come up with one. But there's one in particular I want you to know about in Exodus 32. There's a story that models for me what my leadership is like. And it's a story where God is fed up with his people. He's tired of them. He's through with them. He wants to wipe them out, kill them all, and start over with just Moses. And do you know what Moses does? He stands up to God in Exodus 32 and says, God, you can't do that. You can't wipe these people out. You made promises to them. You made a covenant. You're in relationship with them. If you wipe them out, then your name, your great name, will be destroyed. That's the kind of leader Moses was. 
To stand in the presence of God and say, hey, be faithful to your relationship, to your covenant. When Moses dies, or as the story of Scripture likes to say, goes the way of dirt, the next question is, well, who's in charge next? And this young guy named Joshua is following along in his path, and he's the next leader. I can't imagine what it would be like to be Joshua, to take over after Moses, the greatest leader. And God comes to him, and he says in Joshua 1, hey, be strong, be courageous. I'm going to be with you in the same ways that I was with Moses. Towards the end of of Joshua's rule, Joshua gives us our one-liner for him that I think is valuable, where he is one that looks at the group of people, and he tells them, you're going to have a choice. You're going to have a choice of who you will serve. There are lots of gods, there are lots of leaders that are out there, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? That's a famous one. Joshua 24, verse 15. And so that's one that needs to be emblazoned upon our mind. And Joshua looks at the people and they say, yes, we're behind you just like we were behind Moses. Hurrah! And Joshua says, oh, no, you're not. You're going to fall. You're not going to follow God as we should. Oh, no, we're not. We're going to follow. No, but when you fail, come back to this God who's been faithful to you. When Joshua dies, the next question is, who's in charge? Who's going to lead this group of people? The book that I want you to glance at is the book of Judges. And it's a book where you have all these various leaders that are all over the place, almost like a confederacy. They're kind of loosely connected. They're leading some of them at the same time. We've got 12 that are in the story, but there's a whole lot more than that. Men and women who were leading the people during this time. And what's interesting about this story is that they're Charismatic leaders, they're full of the Holy Spirit. They're military leaders. They're judicial leaders. They are people that are deciding between cases, and they are also settling these cases in various parts of the country. What's interesting to me about the story is the cycle that's there. Judges has this kind of rerun quality to it. There's silence where there's no leadership. And then people begin to move away from God because they don't have a leader. And they begin to suffer where God sends some problem to them. And the next thing that happens is they cry out and they say, God, we're suffering. Send us a leader. And God sends a leader. And then the leader dies. And there's this cycle of silence and then sin and suffering, crying out to God and getting another leader. It's like a marathon rerun of the very same episode. Not all the episodes of The Office, but just the same episode over and over again. And in this story, what I want to pull out to you is Gideon. Because while we have these many leaders, Gideon is one of the crazy stories that's in there. A man with clay pots and fire where he's wanting a big army. God gives him a tiny army and he chases him off with clay pots and fire. It's a crazy fun story. Well, after it's over, the people are enamored that he was able to do this. And they say, in, in, uh, in Judges chapter 8, verse 22, we want you, Gideon. Would you rule over us? Would you be our leader? Gideon has a choice at that moment. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. I'm not even going to let my sons rule over you because it's the Lord who is the ruler over you. He makes the choice to point to God. 
In fact, this whole book of Judges, none of these leaders are called the noun name judge. The only time that it's used is twice, but the one that you could look at is in 11 verse 27, where it says that Yahweh is judge. Even with all of those various leaders, there's only one leader. And in this mix of kind of a self-guided mayhem of all these various leaders, people looking to different ones, still there's an effort to point to God. Which brings us to our last group of leaders, the kings. So we've looked at fathers, we've looked at Joshua and, and Moses, we've looked at these judges, and now we come to the monarchy. The people look around, and there's kind of a little clue in the rerun episode as it plays this was a time when there was no king. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Over and over again, chapter 17, 18, 19, everyone, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so they call out for a king. And at the time, Samuel is prophet. And he is one that is also a judge. And he's wanting to pull his hair out. Because they're wanting a king, and he, does, he knows that... That's just going to mean they're not going to pay attention to God. And so he's torn up by what the people are doing and his desire for them to see God. And he does what good leaders do. You know, good leaders are followers. And this good leader of Samuel goes to God in prayer. And in 2 Samuel 8, God answers him in the midst of prayer and says, no, this is not about you, Samuel. It's not about your leadership. They're rejecting me. Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to give them a king. We're going to provide for them an upfront king that they can see, that can lead them into battle. Three great kings are the ones that if you know anything from the Old Testament, you might have heard some of these. King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. The first three, the greatest three in the story of the Hebrew people. King Saul was a giant of a man. He was very humble at the beginning. It was hard to get him even to lead. But once he got into leading, he wouldn't let go of it. He started taking more and more control, trying to become a religious leader, offering sacrifices. And God said, no, that's not going to work. Samuel had to come back to him and say, God is taking the kingdom away from you. You're not going to be leader any longer. And God gives the king to David the young, most handsome, most celebrated military man, this guy is bad to the bone. The best king of all. And he was perfect, right? No, he was not perfect. None of these people was perfect. In fact, there were all kinds of scandals in his life. Sexual scandals. Women that he slept with, specifically Bathsheba a murder, a cover-up to try to make it go away. And yet there was something different about David. In his imperfection, he repented. And he turned back to God and he acknowledged that he was a weak person. That he was sinful. That was a big difference from someone who would hang on to control and never admit that they were wrong, like King Saul. David hands the throne over to his son, King Solomon. And yet, he was perfect. He had it all together. Well, not exactly. Even though David said, hey, be faithful to Yahweh. Be faithful to the covenant that was given to you, the promise from God. 
What does King Solomon do? Well, he marries lots of wives. It's a political move. He marries wives from all these different kingdoms and countries. And he thought that that might be a way to bring peace. And I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know how many father-in-laws you need to make peace in the world. It didn't work. It didn't work at all. Now with these stories, all of these many stories, these characters that I've tossed at you, over and over again the question is, who is in charge? Who's in charge of your life? And at this section of the story of God, I'm inviting you to do something a little bit strange. To imagine your life as if God were in charge. As if God were with you in this journey. And I told you at the front a couple of ways that we tend to think about this. That I don't want to be told what to do. We think about God as this great rule keeper and maker in the sky. Or we think about God as somehow controlling us, that he has the master controls, that he's just organizing things in our life. And I want to give you the third thing. The third thing that I'd like you to try. I'd like you to think about partnering with God. A partnership where you are truly co-authoring your life with God. That you're not alone. You're in partnership. And I've got four things that I want to share with you just to make you think about this a little bit. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, it's worth a try to live your life for a time as if God were there and as if God were worthy of partnering with you. And the first thing I'll tell you is that you have agency. You have a choice. You can choose to reject God. You can choose to be your own leader or choose another leader. It's totally up to you. With the story of Joshua, Joshua laid that before the people. Choose whom you will serve. He provided that choice that they had between following God or not following God. And he let them know that they probably wouldn't follow in the ways that they hoped or imagined. And even in this time of transition, Joshua was a leader who knew it wasn't about him and it wasn't about Moses. It was about pointing the people to God. And so with his agency, he pointed people to God. You have agency to do whatever you wish. You can choose to be your own God. A second thing. You know, this amazing story of Moses where God could have abandoned his people. He could have given up on the covenant. He could have walked away and started over. In the story of God, I'm inviting you to choose what is good. If you need something to think about, how is it that I imagine my life with God? It's when you've got a choice to make. What's the most God-honoring choice that you can make? What is a choice that will provide the best good? Not what's most beneficial for yourself, not what will bring you the most money or esteem or accolades, but what's best, what is truly good. To think outside of yourself as if there is a leader beyond you. And I invite you to think about Moses, who was willing to stand in the face of God and say, you promised back here. Be faithful to who you are and take care of your people. And you know when he did that? Was it because they were so great? No. They just built a golden calf to worship. 
The same thing with us. Our lives are not always perfect, which brings us to the third thing that I want you to hear. This group of kings, like all of the leaders, was imperfect and weak in every way. And we look at our lives and we make mistakes. We can't even really lead our own lives very well. And I invite you, as you're imagining your life with God and the story of God, to let God take your weaknesses, your struggles, and your sins. To acknowledge them. In fact, to allow God to innovate your mistakes and your sins. The messes that we make of our lives, that's a part of our agency. That's a part of us making choices. But give that to God and become partners and say, okay, God, I've made a mess of this one. How are we going to get out of this together? That's a big difference. That's a surrender that acknowledges both I've made a mistake and a commitment to a power that's greater than ourself. All right, one more. One more thing is to let God lead. You will have people, not just you, but you will have other people that will want you to be the leader and want you to play God, just like they did with Gideon. Oh, Gideon, you did a great thing with that clay pot and fire thing. We want you to be leader. And Gideon says, no, I'm not going to lead over you, and neither are my sons, but God is. Did that mean that Gideon just laid down on the floor and said, all right, God, I'm here. I'm passive. I'm not going to do anything. No, Gideon had agency, and he, he led. But he led in partnership with God. The best leaders in all of these stories are leaders who follow God. Now, I'm hoping that for you, it becomes a more settled answer to the question of who's in charge. That you allow God to be in charge. That you already know that's a way to live. And I want to push yet another question on you to think about. Because the question is not only who is in charge, but who's willing to follow. Are you willing to partner with God and let Him lead your life? Let God be the dominant force that when you've got big decisions, when you've got big things that you're facing, you are settling those and authoring them with God. The story of Harold Crick, and I, I do hope that maybe some of you will watch that movie, Stranger Than Fiction, is a story a lot about agency. The story of an author that's writing this book that she figures out there's actually a real person that she has control over. The story ends with some very interesting plays on agency of how Harold Crick has agency and how the author has agency. And for us, I invite us into the story of God to know and recognize who God is and at least for a time begin to imagine our lives in this story and to be followers, followers of God. Let's pray. Eternal God, we thank you for being a God who leads among us, who has come as Jesus and shown us the depth of your love by surrendering yourself to our rebellion, our sin, and allowing yourself to die. God, that's the kind of God that we want to serve. 
a God who is willing to be faithful to covenant, faithful to promise, even at the height of our unfaithfulness. God, as you're writing our story, we ask that you'll be with us in our weakness, that we'll recognize that our mistakes are not the end of the story, but that you're writing them into the story, that you're helping us more and more to choose what is good and right and true and beautiful, and help us to leave behind those weaknesses, to leave behind those sins, and to be drawn into the deeper story of what you're doing in this world. And so we pray through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you.